Welcome to The Spectacular Century, conversations about 19th century performance and visual culture. I'm Kate Holmes, I'm a performance historian based out of the University of Exeter. I'm Jim Davis and I'm a theatre historian based at the University of Warwick. I'm Kate Newey, I'm a theatre historian at the University of Exeter. I'm Patricia Smith and I'm an art historian working at the University of Warwick. And we're part of an AHRC project working on theatre and visual culture in the long 19th century. So today's conversation is one that I'm going to have with Kate Newey. Today we're going to be talking about moving bodies, some on the ground and some in the air. So Kate, you have practised as an aerialist and then you've done quite a lot of research into the history of aerialism. You've got a book about 1920s female aerialists. How do you connect those things up and why should we worry about, you know, these are circus performers. What is it about them that mm, extends to other aspects of popular performance, of visual spectacle and so on? So one of the reasons I think we should bother is because actually moving bodies, quite often the sort of descriptions that that they attract tell you a bit more about wider society and culture because there's something about non-speaking bodies that, that seems to do this, this and speaks to wider issues. This has been in all our podcasts, hasn't mm. it? The, the importance of non-speaking performance. Actually, yes, yeah, completely. And this is in the sort of the scale that I'm on, I'm looking at is very active, very risky. And it's also the idea that aerialists were just circus performers is something of a misnomer. So actually you would find aerialists in music halls. You'd also find them in pleasure gardens, which are these, these green spaces filled with lots of different types of entertainments that might include well, They theaters. have fireworks. Yes, fireworks. They have fireworks and like, um, special displays of animals or special yes. plants and, and kind of spectacular gardens and planting and yes and uh, you know at night they would be lit by you know gaslight in coloured globes at places like you know Cremorne that would have been that's been described a bit like a sort of fantasy magical land although weren't Vauxhall pleasure gardens which are a little earlier they're they're uh, late 18th early 19th century they were a bit naughty weren't they I mean wasn't that where gentlemen went to seek out ladies of Dubious virtue, shall we say? <laughs> I think it, it features, doesn't it, in, um, is it uh, Vanity Fair, the William Thackeray mm. novel, which is, of course, set in the time of the Napoleonic Wars. Yes. I mean, I think, I think there's always a bit of what can be covered by darkness. And certainly at Cremorne, which I know more about, there's this idea that there is a different set of audiences, that there's the daytime more respectable. And then in the evening, you've got the, the swells. And there's lots of talk of a large number of prostitutes but well, there's we should probably say prostituted we women, should yeah maybe, we should actually, yeah yes. uh, but to be honest there's the evidence on that is a little bit dodgy so i think we've got to be careful about saying that that's who so was that's really there that's another story that that's we're another story isn't yeah. it that's that's really what we've been doing is talking yeah. about different ways of looking at all of these popular yeah. entertainments so in aerial performance so it's in all of these different mm. venues. I mean, that's really interesting because one of the things I've been fascinated by is looking at the development of concert dance, mm. uh, mostly ballet, but concert dance more generally in 19th century popular entertainment, mostly through pantomime. And you could make an argument that the elite culture of the royal ballet mm. starts in the totally popular demotic entertainment of 
pantomime in the 19th century, the, the chorus girls who do these very simple step routines mm. actually um, become the corps de ballet and, and as the, the technicality grows. What we're looking at is, is really in the 19th century this sort of mashup of all sorts of different performance forms in different spaces and venues. Yeah, I mean, I'd also say of melodrama that you would find people doing athletic feats you know, there's one, I know that when I've been looking at Leotard, his name crops up as connected to the Colleen Bourne, that there's a review that says that a burlesque of the Colleen Bourne, that the particular female actress went across the, the stage rather than on a rope, on a trapeze a la Leotard or something along those lines. So, let's, so who's Leotard? I mean, because ah, I know okay. ballet class. Yes. Like ballet class four or five mm. times a week that I do, I put on a Leotard. But yes. Who... So, Jules Leotard was a French aerial performer who is the person who we consider the first aerial celebrity. Ah, When was he performing? So, he started performing in 1859 until his death in around about 1870. Mm. And he performed on... Well, the closest we can kind of think of it is a solo flying trapeze. So if you're familiar with flying trapeze, well, most people will be from going to the circus. It's it's often the the big aerial act. It traverses the space. You've got a platform at one side, a platform at another side, a big net, and then you've got at least two trapeze, one which will have somebody swinging and they're the catcher. And then you'll have another person, you know, well, a series of different performers who will jump off the board, hanging from a trapeze, and then will be be caught in some way. Right. So so the aerialist is someone who's kind of literally flying through the air from one swing. These swing things were, uh, what, ropes with a bar? So ropes, a trapeze is is, uh, two ropes and a bar. And what you, I mean, aerial performance also includes rope and silks so uh, and that's when people are climbing up and down climbing up and down so there's different types of equipment but the equipment that leotard performed on was actually a smaller version of, of what we see today and he had a a platform that ran throughout the center of the performance space and he had a ladder on either end he also then had he would then sort of jump you know grab hold of his bar swing out and he would then propel himself onto the next bar and if he if he missed he would come down on that platform oh so he didn't come down on a net he, no gosh that but that's actually quite risky isn't it you know landing mm. on a platform it's not a soft landing i mean they did try and cushion it with mat well what they call them mattresses or carpet and sawdust yeah, yeah. So and, and and it being it was sort of built as a bit of a trestle, so it was built a bit off the ground, so that boards would be able to take some of the impact. So but they yes, had a it bit was of spring risky. in them; they were yeah. like a sprung floor. And so, how high up was the the aerial platform that he jumped from? I mean, um, you, you're saying it's not as high as say a modern circus, and I no. I mean, last time I went to a circus was probably about thirty years ago. So mm. I'm sorry, I don't go to them very often. I would say it's probably a couple of meters up, rather than yeah. maybe one and a half meters, rather than uh, I don't know five. All oh, right, so that song, you know, the daring young men in their flying trapeze. Yes. It often looks like he's flying overhead, but this is a kind of visual illusion of the well, illustrations. Well, he, he would have been, in a way, flying overhead. So, you know, yeah. there would have been... It would still be above the heads of of most people standing 
you know, or or sitting, but it's not far above. Right. It's not the kind. It's not right at the top, which is what yes. we see nowadays. Yes, and we, do, you know, when we see in the Chinese circus, you know, forty people all on one bicycle across a tightrope or something extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. completely. So it, it is. It is a different type of act but at the, at the time that he performed he was the first person to do that so the first person to do anything i mean even if he's only a meter off the ground that's yeah. going to be extraordinary isn't it yeah i mean yeah a, a meter and a half to two i think mm. but but yeah it, it is it is extraordinary and the idea i think as well of traveling across space kind of brings together ideas of unmechanized flight which at that time would have been quite powerful you know the romantic ballet emerges in the 1830s and 40s where we start to get this sense of the ballet dancer that the the female dancer the men were really just there to kind of partner you know they weren't doing anything extraordinary the famous romantic ballerinas we're seen as floating just above the ground, and certainly there are visual illustrations of them uh, on their tiptoes, just floating, appearing to float just above the ground. I mean, it's when you start to get the use and the development of the point shoe, mm. which is a very specific technology. But at this point, in the 1830s and 1840s, the point shoe was really just the satin ballet slipper with it, which has a tiny sole and really fits the foot very tightly. They would just strengthen the tip of that shoe with darning and then some sort of papier-mâché strips of glued paper. So a lot of it was their technical skill. Nowadays, of course, the point shoe, if I banged one on on the, the desk here, it's got a very solid block at the end of, well, again, papier-mâché, but, you know, many, many layers, and then reinforced, you, you keep point shoes going by reinforcing them mm. with shellac and other kinds of glue. But then the sole is layers of really solid material, often a really, really thick card, or even very thin, almost like plywood. And, you know, you can bang drawing pins into mm. walls with them. <laughs> So this really interesting interest in the middle of the 19th century in this idea of unmediated movement, flying movement through space and I think in dance and aerialism. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting with it is that we have these kind of slightly coded ideas around, you know, you, you've, you've the, the ballet, the female ballet dancer as the, as the weightless mm. figure. And there is something of that that is, is also going on with aerial performance, that there is this tension between what we might uh, call masculine strength mm. and feminine grace or weightlessness. And mm. both of those things are required mm. to make aerial movement possible. But of course you have to cover up, I mean, I suppose in aerial performance, showing the masculine strength isn't so problematic. In ballet, certainly for female dancers, they have extraordinary strength. I mean, core abdominal muscles like steel, glute muscles, thigh, you know, quadriceps, all sorts of real muscular strength. But it can't be shown. It has to all look effortless. Men are allowed to have a little bit more effort in the really high, big jumps. Yes, and, and I would say that somebody like Leotard, part of the appeal is, is that he was demonstrating masculine strength mm. it's just that sort of grace slipped in there yes, and that actually yes. at that time with the growth of muscular christianity 
which was all about athleticism, was all about getting to God through having a a marvellous, you know, uh, te- body is a temple type of oh, the idea. The healthy mind in the healthy body. Yes. Like men's sane, men's corpora. Yeah. So it's all that sort of, well, he was, he was talked about as part of the movement in at least one one or two articles. So there's there's something, there is, that strength is definitely much more acceptable for him. However, when you start getting female performers coming through a little bit later, performing the same act as him, somebody like Mademoiselle Azella, who's performing in 1867, 1868, then there's, there's a little bit more concern expressed. And what I actually think is quite interesting is you mentioned that song, The, uh, the Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. I actually think that that is linked, because there's a woman mentioned in it, mm-hmm. And that the, I actually think that is that is more about Zeller than about Leotard, oh. because it is the date of it is around uh, 1867, 1868. So I actually think it's a it's a bit of a response to the fact that Leotard had been a craze and that a woman has started performing, and so I. I yeah, there's something quite so interesting about that. you say that Leotard was a craze, and he's the yeah. first person to do the spectacle, the spectacular mm. thing. But you started by saying, well, the reason we should bother about aerial performance is because it actually enacts some things that are happening in the wider culture. So what were some of those things? I mean, obviously, the, the idea of these gendered stereotypes mm. of bodies. Definitely. And we, we see this in, in um, the development of concert dance as well. Mm. And I mean, one of the things I think that either you love or hate about formal classical ballet nowadays is that it in the in the the nineteenth century repertoire it still plays out all of those gender roles and gender stereotypes. Mm. You know, if you think of Giselle, it's a perfect melodrama about a young peasant girl who or a young village girl who falls in love with a handsome man who appears to be just a huntsman but it's revealed that he's really the prince in disguise and he's he's already committed to marrying someone else and Giselle basically goes mad and dies at the, <laughs> that's the end of the first act and then the second act is an act of revenge and retribution and the the um, the hero is lured into the kingdom of the willies these ghosts of young women who were uh, abandoned by their betrothed fiancés. And he's danced to death by these female ghosts. It's extraordinary. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's the 1840s, and it was, a, it was an opera, it was a ballet, and it was a series of melodramas. Mm. Well, I, th- I think, you know, talking about sort of what sort of things does it reveal, I mean, one thing in particular is a bit of a concern with, with risk in the mid 19th century. Mm. So you find a lot of concerns about people going to see this type of entertainment that involves having a man put his his neck on the line and you know the the people people who are described as moral cowards for going to see Leotard. Cowards. I mean is that is that partly because this is a time of increased industrialization and mechanization of say working life and you know, in Britain, we've got the series of factory acts which started to try to make the workplace well, limit hours, limit the the ages of children, but also create much safer working places so people weren't 
mangled by machines, for example. I think it's very much that. Yeah, and also that you've got your, you know, your leisure activities, even going to the theatre. You know, there's there's concerns about theatres burning down or, or you know, not having adequate. Um, ventilation, ventilation mm. and and the um, staircases being too narrow, so there's there's those kind of concerns. There's concerns about travelling on the railway, that you know that's actually quite a, a risky activity. So there's lots of concerns. I think particularly about urban life, which are both about how you work and how you how you spend your leisure time. And I guess that there's sort of risks that nowadays we kind of go, but. Railway travel's really safe. But this is the pace of change, isn't it? Completely, completely. And even into the nineteen twenties when I've looked at you know, looked at material on aerialists then, you've got people travelling around America on the railroad and that's what the, that's how the circus is travelled. But it's actually built into the contract that you know, you can read the concern about travelling on the railways in there mm. because, you know, there were railway accidents mm. that killed I think there was one in 1918 that killed most of a, a or some like 88 people from it from the Hagenbeck Wallace Circus. Goodness me! So that's wiping out like half the circus workforce. Of yeah, that a good chunk of circus. It. Yeah, yes. a good chunk of it. I can't remember the precise and figures. The animals. I mean, they, did they transport the animals? By yes, they would have done. Yeah, they well. would have done. Yeah. But obviously, that's a bit later. But it yeah. still shows that that concern about the railways in the uh, late 19th century, mid to late yeah. 19th century, would have been there. It's something about control too, isn't mm. it? You can't, a runaway railway engine or something. I mean, not for nothing does does the railway crash and the idea of the railway as this slightly unsafe space make its appearance in melodrama, for exactly. example. Exactly, exactly. That, that various, you know, there are various melodramas around the kind of sensation of someone being tied to the railway tracks or a railway accident, and mm. yeah. Mm. But uh, you briefly mentioned the leotard, and I think it's also worth saying that we do c- call the leotard after Jules the Leotard. The item of clothing yeah. is called after Jules Leotard. Yeah, ah. and that was actually because it was quite different to what other performers wore. And it was more figure-hugging. Mm. It displayed his muscles a little bit more, mm. getting back to that idea of a strong male body being a positive thing mm. for many people. Mm. Mm. Although that did it raise its own concerns. There were some people who felt that, similar to today, ideas of moderate exercise rather than, you know, rather than the kind excess. of... Excess. Excess, yes. Yeah. But if you think today of a leotard, it is very similar to a male version of a leotard, which, you know, has the, the trunks cuts across pectoral muscle, Mm. which I think are also deliberate because they're pieces of muscle that they cut across which emphasise the existence. And there's also, to be frank, you can also... There's outline of genitalia as well, Mm. which shows Mm. a very male body. Yeah, the buttocks and the legs, I suppose. Did they cover their legs and arms? Yeah, so they used fleshings underneath the leotard. So this is like flesh-coloured... Tights. Yes, essentially. Right. So the most common representations of leotard have him in black leotard and white fleshings. Ah. So that's uh, which extended to the ankle and to the wrist. Uh, because but bared yeah. his chest. But yeah, but uh, kind of cu- cut across cut. his chest. Yes. yes. So we didn't see nipples. Didn't see nipples, no. Right. No. But that would have caught whatever lights there were in these different performance spaces. Yes, and he was accused by some people of padding his tights in the leg department. Well, that was not something that was unusual. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. But, you know, you know yeah. when men had to wear tights and, and male calves, unless mm. you do a lot of really dedicated training, for some reason, calves in men yes. don't round and they they pad their calves and their thighs and and maybe buttocks as well but i do actually believe leotard when he said he didn't (laughs) because he also was a cyclist Um, ah well that would have developed his legs yeah so he i think he had he had well developed legs but women apparently uh, would if they were at the front might take out a pin and try and pin it pin his (laughs) leg and poke him to see if they were real which suggests something about the closeness Mm. and the lack of kind of boundary you know this sort of I mean, imagine leaning forward nowadays at a theatre or indeed a circus in the front row, leaning forward to stick a pin in a performer. It, you're not close enough. And there are so many habits of being an audience, you know, conventions of being an audience that you just wouldn't really think of doing it. I know, it is quite strange. So what does that say about that relationship between performer and audience? That's quite interesting in that space. Yeah, I, I suppose it suggests that a lot of the, I suppose a lot of the the spaces that that Leotard performed in maybe were not conventional theatrical ah, spaces because you yeah. know music hall there's mm. there's more of people are seated round tables aren't they yeah they're seated round tables there is a sense of connection some of the other acts that you know an identification with a lot of the the, the comics would and singers would be would be trying to create that kind of intimate and engaged relationship that relied on coming from a similar place in life as the, as the people within the audience mm, so yeah. I, I suspect there's probably a bit of that and then you've also got pleasure gardens which people there's no there's not necessarily a, a stage so to speak although you know that there, there, there were theatres on some of those those um, venues but the spectacular nature of his act and the mm. craze for leotard would have facilitated or ensured that an audience would gather around wherever he yeah. started to perform it. So, you know, if he's kind of like busking in these pleasure gardens, he's going to stop the crowds, isn't he? Well, actually, in the case of Leotard, he didn't do that so much. He was actually uh, took over a glass house. Crikey! Uh, so a flying trapeze in a glass house. I know it sounds that really adds nice. to the risk. Yes. Um, so this was the Ashburnham Pavilion, and the Ashburnham Pavilion was a was a hot house. It was quite a large one, if you think that 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 kind of pl- industrial plate glass was a fairly new innovation. So that's spectacular and special yeah. in itself. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. So you've got him performing in there, you've got his platform across the middle, but people are, you know, th- there's one sketch which shows people kind of quite close up to the platform and gathered round, as you say. So there's, there's less of an idea of, I think, conventional seating practices that you might expect in a theatre. So you, it is that, there's that sense of intimacy. And I also think that, you know, when you watch aerial performance, you often have kind of echoes of sensations of the lifting in the stomach and yeah. that sort of thing. So I think there might be I'm that sure, as well. Yeah, and I'm sure that's the same when people watch dance. Completely. That, you know, when you're watching someone do a, a big leap, a split legs leap, we mm. call it a grand jeté, across the stage, there's a bit of you that kind of goes with, or when someone's doing loads of turns, pirouettes, mm. uh, famously in one of the solos of the Black Swan, I think it is, in Swan Lake, it's a, it's a virtuoso display that she does these 32 fuetes, which is quite a difficult pirouette exercise. And you can almost hear people in the audience counting fascinating (laughs) but there's certainly this sense of is she going to make it is she going to make it which very much feels like you know what you would be if you're watching aerial performance you're also is it going to make the catch 
Yes. Is it going to catch that bar? Yeah, you know? yeah. So the risk then, mm. you're talking about it as a, as a moral question or concern, mm. but it's also part of the attraction. <gasps> of oh, the yes. Yes, definitely. So I think it sort of functions on those two different levels, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. But I wonder, you know, I don't know that much about what ballet dancers wore in in the in the 19th century because I did am I did they wear leotards? No, they wore fleshing. So they wore mostly flesh-coloured or possibly white in the white ballets, like leotard and, and mm. the women. I mean, the men kind of wore breeches and jackets, you know, doublets or whatever, very much like one would now in a in a classical ballet. But the women wore um, calf-length dresses so their ankles showed. So you could see the delicacy of their footwork, I think. Mm. But there is also that other slightly forbidden, you know, there, there are areas of the body that are culturally taboo and ankles and waists and decollete, you know, the, 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 the chest, the bust area, shall you think, yes. that sort of lower neck area are, are all areas that dancers expose I wonder um, about yeah. the because um, I've read stuff about armpits being an issue for aerialists. Were they ever an issue for ballet dancers? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. I think possibly if they were covered with the the, the fleshings. Mm. I mean, the visual record is interesting for dancers because it's quite idealised. So it's hard, and we're talking romantic ballet here. We you know we talk about generally classic ballet, classical ballet. But actually, in the 19th century, the first half of the 19th century, we would talk about romantic ballet. The second half is the technically classical ballet based on the the shift of the sort of centre of the balletic world from Paris to St. Petersburg, really, and the Russian imperial ballet and the, 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 the kind of repertoire that comes out of that, which are the great white ballets such as Swan Lake, Raimonda, and so on. Although the tradition is French and Italian through the choreographers and the teachers, Britain. Well, there are two types of concert dance that start in the nineteenth century, and so there's this focus on the Romantic ballet and the importation of Italian and French dancers. So Taglioni, Grisi, Fanny Elsa from uh, I think she's Swiss German, although at that point Germany is not a country. And then there's this other form of concert dance, which is the massed spectacle in, say, pantomime or melodrama, which is really a very basic form of kind of chorus dancing, step dancing, it was often called. But the two types of dance have a lot in common in terms of the training and so on. And but they, I, as far as I, we can tell from the visual record, what they trained in were kind of tunic-like or shortened dresses with full skirts and still quite tight bodices. I don't know whether they wore corsets and stays, as would have been the normal underwear for women in that period. Probably they did, actually, because the emphasis on the cinched-in waist. And often in the pantomime, in these mass spectacles, they were very still. They were dressed to look like fairies, and then they were kind of strapped into mechanical apparatus that would push them around the stage in these kind of transformation scenes. So similar kinds of risk, actually, in terms of the interaction of the human body with mechanisms, yeah, engines, yeah. you know, and, and you hear, you read terrible stories about 
young ballet girls, chorus girls who whose dresses catch fire or who are bodily maimed in some way from getting entangled in the machinery of, of some of the stage effects that they were they were kind of the human bodies in this bigger stage effect. Well, something like the um, the star trap that was meant to be quite a, a risky piece of equipment, wasn't it? That yeah. propelled a, a figure through the stage and up through. And so traps generally, perhaps mm. we should explain to yeah. about traps because they're really interesting. And mm. I mean, again, they're not necessarily part of aerial performance, but they are part of this sort of this part of popular performance that's really athletic and gymnastic. And the trap was a way of getting people up onto stage quickly and often quite spe- in a spectacular way, often just a, at one moment they're not there and the next moment they're there. You know, the star trap was one of those, wasn't it? Or the other way around as well. Yes. One moment they're there and then one moment they're gone. They so something like the vampire yeah, just, trap. The vampire yeah. trap where they yeah. just seem to drop through the floor. Mm. And these were holes in the stage that were covered by painted cloths, really. Mm. Um, with a mechanism underneath the stage and, and mm. theatres were built with very deep below stage, you know, often two stories deep, really. Um, and there are various forms of mechanics that the actor stood on and was kind of propelled up or down. I, I often think there must have been tremendous bravery because there was no kind of safety rail around around the trap. But the, and the star trap, the, the hole in the... the the floor was cut in a sort of star shape, wasn't it? Is that yeah, why? so it's it's wood. It's yes. wood with the star trap. It's and um, the flaps open. Yes, up. the flaps open up, up to to let the person through. But I yeah. believe if you were angled slightly wrong, you could well end up with a brain injury. Yeah, because one of the if you were if you were going headfirst up through the star trap, <laughs> and you've got these wooden flaps that have to open mm. to let you through. Yeah, you could see how a black eye would be the least of it. I think one thing that's really interesting is the way in which even where it's about bodies at this at this period it's also about an industrial space yeah you know you've you've already mentioned gas but you know one of the things that i find really interesting about a gaslight and aerial performance is that it probably facilitated somebody like leotard being able to move into different types of spaces than might have might have been able to occur before because the light caught him flying through the air. Yes, and it also enabled him to safely catch a, a bar. Because oh, he could see it. Because he could see yes. it. So if you think that, you know, prior to gaslight, you you kind of had a frame of light that was afforded by oil and candle around the stage. And that sort of led into the 18th century to a lot of the time to actors performing at the footlights mm. for their kind of key scenes and this being a bit of criticism sometimes. But... With somewhere like the Alhambra Music Hall, which is where Leotard premiered in London. In, that's Leicester Square, isn't it? So that's right. Right in the centre of the West End. Completely. As it's emerging as mm. this international centre for entertainment, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and it's it's a quite high-end venue in terms of music halls. But Posh music hall. <laughs> Bohemian, I believe. Oh, right. um, but yes, it's, a, it's quite an ad- advanced venue. It's got... When it opens after a refurbishment, I think just prior to Leotard performing, there's a, a sunlight, which is a, a new type of auditorium lighting that is, you know, is an evolution on from the uh, chandelier gas lighting. Oh. And so this is a place of luxury and yes. innovation and kind of new things, new stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you, but you've also got lighting, you know, lighting from 
that, that is able to actually, on buttons, go back into the stage. So there's the availability for the stage to, to be lit into the back, mm-hmm. which means that his equipment could be positioned at the back of the stage. He had three, tra- three trapeze, although I'll explain that one of them isn't exactly trapeze. One at the back, one over the central dome in the auditorium, and one at the gallery. So that enabled him to perform across a, a larger length than would have been possible and quite before a that. Huge space, uh, and yes. really as if he's flying into the gallery, which is the they're the cheap seats at the yes. top of the theatre at the back and quite high up, aren't they? Yeah. Ah. So that then enabled him to. So gaslight enabled him to be seen. I think prior to that kind of lighting his act could not have happened in a theatrical venue. This is extraordinary that what we're looking at really, and this is a theme of a lot of our conversations, is the way that these apparently trivial, trashy, popular Mm. entertainment forms in the 19th century that it's been fashionable to kind of go, oh, but they were just terrible, actually carry innovation, experiment, a kind of immersive experimental approach to performance that we see as sort of avant-garde nowadays, but it was part of the popular culture. Oh, completely. Just, you know, before we finish up, I feel like I should just just sort of mention that one thing that I said about one of the, the trapeze not being what we might conventionally think of as a trapeze. The first one that he used was two ropes with stirrups at the bottom. And that actually means that a lot of the time it's been described as trapeze. And one thing that that has slightly, slightly hidden is that Leotard could perform slightly more repertoire than we really than, than we may have given him credit for in the past. That speaks to exactly what you're saying about innovation. Mm. That he could perform something similar to straps acts, which you would see today, and that's not something that we've given him credit for popular entertainment as something really worth looking at because it's experimental innovative all the things that we tend to attach to elite culture actually come to us through popular culture very much so i think that's a great place for us to end kate this podcast is supported by the university of exeter drama department and the arts and humanities research council